Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... Which is so many people just dream of doing something and being successful and all that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, you've got to really knuckle down and do the work. People in business that seem to make mega millions and it looks so easy, but most of them go through a tough time getting there. Most people are sitting around dreaming and imagining how they could do this, that and the other, but somewhere along the line, the, the backbone is what you have to have to get into the project. If you think creating, developing and building a world-class golf course is all birdies and eagles, well, you might think again. When entrepreneur farmer Richard Sattler, with a few others, pushed ahead with building the 18-hole Barn Boogle Lynx course on his dramatic windswept stretch of coastline in northeast Tassie, he battled through the many bunkers and bogeys thrown up at him. We heard last week about the white-knuckle ride through the devastating pilot strike and 91 recession in Barn Boogle Farm's first few years. In part two, Richard talks candidly about the ugly legal stoush with his partners over the development of his second golf course, Lost Farm, played out no less than in the federal court and the newspapers, and why he took the plunge and how he built a third golf course during the middle of the COVID pandemic in 2020. This gung-ho entrepreneur talks of the importance in business, of support of his wife Sally, and now their children, who are all involved in either the golf or the farm. Hope you enjoy part two of my chat with Richard Sattler. Welcome back, Richard Sattler, to part two of our conversation on Build It, Thou Come. It's a pleasure. Now, Lost Farm was your, your second golf course. It sort of became a, a sister course, I guess, across the river, as I understand it, from yep. Van Bugle. Was it a, an instant success as well? Definitely, yep. Once we got it open, in a golf course, you're really two years planning, two years to build it and grow it in. So it's a, wow. a four-year project from saying, yes, we're going to go with it, to getting it designed built and grown in because you're really looking at 12 months in most cases but from when you finish suiting until it's ready to play. Yeah. So when did it open for playing? 2010, 10th of December, which was exactly six years after the first one. Wow. So did you find everybody who came wanted to play the second course? Yep, I reckon there'd be there's probably only a 5% differential that favour one against the other or don't play both. So it's really, we achieved straight away what I needed to do was to have people come down and say, yep, they're both must plays. Mm. And how different is Lost Farm from Barn Boogle to play? Well, it's probably, we tried to get the architects to open it up a little bit. Barn Boogle Dunes had got very much a reputation that it was a ball gobbler. You lost so many balls <laughs> there and it was really hard and you had to be a very good golf to play it. Yeah. We've tried to soften up a bit since. To balance it, we said the architects, you've got to open Lost Farm up a little bit. It's got to be a little bit easier for the average golfer so that they're in tune. They can play a hard course, but they've got a little bit of relief on the second day or the first day, whichever days they play. So it just had to be a little bit more open, a little bit easier, but still with really natural link style to it. Mm. And 
Court Crenshaw, the architects there, were very responsive to that, so they just softened it up a little bit, I suppose you could say. So you had this another great success on your hands, but in the background there was some drama going on with your partners, as I understand it, in the first investment in Barnburgle. Now, in mid-2012, you got a judgment in the federal court in Melbourne in your favour after this long-running dispute with your partners in Barnburgle about the development of Lost Farm Golf Course. Just if I can summarise and let me know if I'm wrong, you were the majority shareholder in Lynx Golf Tasmania and the minority shareholders sued you and Lynx Golf Tasmania was the operator of Barnburgle. The minority shareholders sued you for breach of fiduciary duty, conflict of interest, a few other things. How painful and difficult was that whole experience, the fight, the court case? It was very difficult because it wasn't just the minority shareholders suing me. They went to the federal court and got permission to use that company, Lynx Golf Tasmania, to sue me. So that was the entity that sued me. So I was actually sued by a company that I owned 60% of, mm. which I thought was pretty unfair. So I was actually having to pay all of my legal bills and in effect 60% of theirs. Oh. And they were only shareholders of a leasehold operation they had no freehold interest in it whatsoever. It was purely just the, the operation of the golf course. And they claimed that they had an entitlement to be in the second course. And I said, well, you don't because I own the land and I've owned the land for a long time before you came. And I had an idea to build the course before you ever came along. So I don't believe you have any idea of what you're going into. And I just could not believe that they didn't have a God-given right to tell me how I was going to run my operation. Mm. Not only did they not have a God-given right, but when looking through the judgment, they didn't have any contractual right. They believed they were entitled to be part of the lost farm development, even though what no such terms existed in your contracts or their leases That's right. over Barnburgle. And there was a shareholders agreement to say that I was entitled to do whatever I liked on any of my other property, including golf. I thought I was fully covered, but the judge that looked at it at the time said it was worth going to trial on. And these other blokes realising that I was basically picking up the bill and I was still trying to finish Lost Farm. So I think they worked on the theory that they might be able to send me broke and have the lot for themselves, And which is one thing, as you'll see in the judgment, that the judge realised that and realised in the end that there was a fair percentage of it that was of no benefit to the entity that was suing me, which Link's Golf, which I owned 60% of. Quite a few of the clauses that they used to take to trial were of no benefit to Link's Golf, but yet they were using, mm. saying that they were representing Link's Golf shareholders. And after the case, we got a judgment in our favour and they were personally having to cough up a lot of the legal expenses on behalf of Link's Golf because they weren't doing it in the interests of Link's Golf. So I can remember talking to a um, senior legal man from Chicago and, and Mike Kaiser and they said, look, you couldn't, this could not possibly be true. You could not do this in the States. How can you be sued by a company that you already control 60% of and you were the landowner and the instigator in the beginning? So they just couldn't believe that our legal system allowed, but it didn't. So we had to fight it and they were never going to give up because they had nothing to lose in their mind. So they had their equity in the Lynx Gulf and they were either going to get a lot more or still have what they had. So remarkably, once we got the, turned around and the legal costs went against them individually, in a fairly substantial way, I was able to say, well, this is never going to work. The blokes that owe me money get out and the rest I will pay out a fair price. But the only way it's going to work is if I own 100%. 
So it gave them 24 hours to think about it and they all had a good think and put the shares on the table. Mm, you bought out the lot of them or...? Without the lot of them, there were ones that were on sided with me. Because probably a third of the minority shareholders sided with me. But I said, "Look for this to work. I'll need to own it myself. It's just not going to continue to work as well." So yeah, we all realised that was probably the best way to go. That had sided with me, and the ones that hadn't were glad to get out because they had this massive debt that they were going to have to do. So I just said, get out, never set foot in this place again, and if you don't, I will pursue you until I get every cent. So you were very tough, but I guess you would say they were incredibly tough against you in the beginning. Oh, they were unrealistic. Even when we tried to mediate, they were just not interested in mediating. Did you ever think you, they didn't have a legal leg to stand on, but did you ever think, did they have any ethical leg to stand on? They had been your partners in the first golf course. Um, I didn't think so. A lot of people thought they might have had some there, but had I not underwritten the course and been the major shareholder and had never had an idea for golf courses or tourism resorts on the property, yeah, it would be a different story then, which the judge made clear that they weren't the original ideas, man. They thought they were because they'd come to me with the idea of wanting to lease the property, or one of them had, and then he found other shareholders and... They went in there believing that they were, as you noted, they had contractual agreements to be involved in everything where they weren't. And uh, originally I was said that I'd help them out but had no intention of being a major shareholder. But I ended up the major shareholder. Yeah, it was hard, but I, th- I think I was fair all along and the judge agreed with me. It's almost coming up for 10 years since all that happened. What lessons, I guess, particularly about partnerships, did you learn out of that experience that stays with you? Sure, I don't really think I need to answer that question. It's pretty <laughs> you obvious. You have, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, yeah. would you ever have uh, a partnership again? Because you obviously do still with the architects and the developers that you, you do have ongoing relationships with. Yeah, but... It's the ability to, to make the decision and substantiate decisions in a commercial way and all that sort of thing. And I suppose one disadvantage I had was I was looking at the golf business as a commercial enterprise. It was just another addition. It was just like growing carrots mm. instead of potatoes. It was a commercial decision you take. You've got to do properly. Whereas a fanatical golfer is so wound up in whether they eat the bloody left bunker or the right bunker on the par three, they get so obsessed about golf that, Commercial reality is usually a long way behind the golf experience. Mm. So the, a lot of the time I spent in meetings, there was limited commercial reality involved because of this obsession about golf. Yeah, you have always kept that commercial imperative very front of mind for you. Absolutely. You know, it has to make sense on a commercial basis, whatever you do. It's a business. It's not a game. Mm. And that's why it was very hard to take it up and play it. I try and play now a little bit, but I'm still pretty bad if you ask for some <laughs> because it's a business, so much a business that I wanted to make work. And I suppose the court case made me determined to make it even more successful. Yeah. Well, since then, you've added a third course, Boogle Run, which only opened earlier this year, 2021. It's a 14-hole course. Now, how is that sitting with your other two world ranked courses? Well, it's really hard to judge now because we've got no international business. Uh, the mm. best judges are the international people that do bucket list jobs and have got to play every major course in the world. 
but the ones that have played it have been in raptures over it because it's different. Like I just say, like the June's course is eighteen holes, Lost Farms twenty holes, so it's not even traditional to the to the eighteen mm. hole model. So this one being fourteen holes, the, the principle was that if someone arrived a midday flight from Sydney, they could still come and play the short course, but they wouldn't have time to go out and play the full course. So it actually fills in the beginning of their trip, the end of the trip, or if they play early one morning, they can go and head into the sports bar and have a few pizzas and a few beers and then go and play around the Burgle Run, which is only a filling of probably two hours with less etiquette and less formalities there, so they can just go and have a bit of fun. Yeah. We said to the architect that the, the actual green complexes and the holes are still going to be world standard, but we want it to be even more fun than the other courses. And are those greens world standard? I think so, yeah. I can't put on them, so they must be. <laughs> so are you going after a different market or is it just to try and, you know, help people fill out that time that they might spend before or after a flight? No, exactly the same market, but make it fun. So it probably is a bit of an expansion of the market. So if someone was coming in their wife didn't play golf, they could walk around Boogle Run with a putter and just putt off the four right. areas of it and still feel like they're involved and they've played golf. Yeah. They, they don't They don't want to have to pick out a massive driver and have a 200-metre coverage before they can even get to a fairway. Like, they really want to just be able to have fun and say they played golf. But, look, we're really only what, six or eight weeks into the opening of it but the golfers that are playing the other courses are playing it and absolutely loving it. Yeah. The ones that are get a bit old and a bit tight in the joints are saying, this is my style of golf. I can have all the fun of a game of golf without having to walk the distance because you're really looking at 1,800 metres instead of 6,000 metres. We've talked a, a bit earlier in the interview about, you know, starting something in Tasmania, you're an island state, the pilot strike did untold damage several decades ago, but, you know, you're dependent on people flying in and out. A leisure activity business is never going to be all smooth sailing, to mix my metaphors. So did you ever come close to falling over? Oh, absolutely. I did, but not the golf courses would never they were just profitable from day one, which was amazing. And most people still don't believe it because I was so conscious we had to be so controlled in our capital exposure, the way we went around it. Uh, it was a, a very conservative model. Initially, it was probably double the turnover of what I'd budgeted for. So we were instantly profitable and we've never had a year, even a COVID year, that we still made a profit that year, like both the previous year when started in March, we were still profitable, even being closed the last three months. Yeah. Then we closed the first three months of this financial year and we're still profitable this year. Is failure or financial failure or falling over often very close? No, not at all on the golf. I thought it would be when not we started. Not on the golf, but on your farm? Oh, not nowadays. It was no. early days. Very, very close. And how scarum harem is that? It's terrifying. But once you get over it, it's a bit like a, a good belt around the ears when you're at school. After the bloody bruising starts to lift, it's not too bad. you just got to get on with it. So you actually adjust the occasion. I always say, look, I started with nothing. I think when Sally and I met, we probably had $2,000 between us. Uh, I was this is your lovely wife, Sally. This is my wife of 45 years. Yep. Congratulations. Just, I've, given her, I've given her an armchair ride. <laughs> I'm sure you have not. <laughs> <laughs> But she's still there, no doubt, sitting on that veranda, looking over that beautiful place. Well, I told her if she leaves, I'm going with her. <laughs> so, you, yeah, you were pretty broke when you both started out together. Absolutely, we had nothing. 
So that was right before I bought the first farm and before I bought the trucks and anything like that. She was dirty, and even when we had the fuel trucks and one of the main products around the metropolitan areas then was heating oil. And on her days off nursing, she'd come and do the bookwork, sit up in the truck and do the bookwork while I filled the oil heating tanks mm. just so we could get through a bigger volume. So we both had lived a life where you really had to work hard for your mm. money. So an incredible partnership, really. It is, really, yeah, absolutely. Just to 2020 last year and the COVID pandemic, was there initial worry, no doubt, you, Tasmania, of course, like many states, had a few lockdowns, but how did the business go for you last year? Well, basically, we closed down once the lockdown started. Tasmania effectively closed down. You couldn't travel more than 30 kilometres. For how long were you closed? Uh, We were closed either completely or partially for... I suppose six months, wow. nearly seven months. Yep. But what we did instead of going negative, I said, right, well, JobKeeper was a great move by the government, really was. Probably went a little bit too long and taught people bad habits, but to, for businesses to get through and employees to feel comfortable and not as though that was the end of the world, that was a great project. So what we did said, right, we're doing that, but instead of just being negative, we will build this third course during the pandemic. So we've got access to. All our staff, we had barmen, housemaids and everyone working on the project because they had nothing else to do. So working was, on building the new course? Yep. Well, the housemaids were actually replanting marum to stabilise around uh, the edges of the sand, the exposed sand. Fantastic. So, so we did hardly had an outside employee in the construction of it because we use a lot of our own farm machinery and farm hands on it, the machines and even pro shop staff helping with the seeding like it was... Great mm. team effort, and mm. everyone seemed to enjoy it. So instead of being negative, we spent the worst of the pandemic, probably three to four months, we were flat out building a new course. Bill Core was locked down in the States, but he was able to every day go on and view the videos we'd send him or the photos or the drone footage. So he actually, from his home in Arizona, he, he kept the project running by daily meetings with the shapers. We had two shapers from his company here, from March the 1st until the 26th, one got called back to Canada before they shut their boundaries. So we did it with one of their shapers that it was actually an Australian citizen that had been working with him in the States for 10 years. And we did it with our own staff, our own experience and knowledge from our superintendents and greenkeepers and probably drone and photo and video footage. And we built a course when everyone else was locked down and feeling pretty negative. Extraordinary. So that always gives you a bit of enthusiasm mm. so when you say, right, when we're open again, this is going to be interesting to see what people think. Yeah. So, Richard, you got you took advantage of JobKeeper, as many businesses did. Did that help you through? Did you need that? And then what happened to bookings and revenue once you did open up? We opened back up at once. Uh, the borders opened to mainland states. We went from empty to full almost as quickly as we went from full to empty at the beginning of it. Like wow. we, we were right in our peak months when the lockdown was 20th of March, I think, Tasmania lockdown, and we were running at 100% occupancy and we were empty in three days. And that was a rude shock because the, the amount of food that was wasted was incredible. I tried to eat all of it, but I couldn't, but I didn't waste any of the wine. I'm not laughing at that because it would have been a terrible period, but you're <laughs> making terrible, a joke now. <laughs> oh, well, you've got to. You can't. Otherwise, it gets you down. Yeah. So we just said, look, let's do everything positive that we can. And 
it was a bit like when the pilot strike was on. There was nothing you could do. You just had to adjust your business to suit it and hope to survive. And like over the years, I've got fairly conservative in the last probably 10 years that we just hold reserves now so we can always survive a drought. Yeah. And I can know that. Our Premier rang up and said, what's it like there? Probably good monitor of what's happening in tourism. I said, well, this is just like a drought in the farm. No matter how well you make your decisions, you're still not going to make any income. So we just ran the golf operation as if we were a drought-stricken farm. Wind it all back, tighten everything down, don't do anything silly, don't waste money, and wait for it to improve. Mm. So are you back to pre-COVID levels of bookings? Absolutely. Better? Probably, yeah, Better. And we say, we, we don't know whether that's the because, and for a long time in tourism, I've worried that when you really get to the truth of the facts that Australia's actually a net loser from tourism, and I'm starting to be more convinced that my theory for years isn't that far off the mark because we've got a lot of people in Australia spending in Australia. There's so many places in Australia that are doing as good or better than they would have normally. So it just makes you wonder how much actual leisure spending is outside of Australia compared with what comes in. When international borders open up, will you be concerned at all that we, you know, people do start travelling again overseas and forget about Tassie and the Kimberley and Northern Territory? Absolutely. We'll be relying on people to come back in, but Australians are great overseas travellers. And I think this has made most people realise how much they did spend overseas. And there's just so many through a little area like this when you talk to most of them. There's very few that weren't just reasonably comfortable, not wealthy, that didn't go overseas yeah. once every year. Yep. And now that all expenditure is coming back into the local community. So there's really a debatable point there as to whether tourism is a net loss to Australia or not. Mm. So it doesn't worry me if we keep our international borders closed for another 12 months, it will not worry me because we'll be better off. Might be just we've built the third course, but I suspect it's because people still want to do something. And Barton Bugle is actually a plane trip for most. It's almost it's going interstate. It's almost going overseas. Mm. So we sort of fit their desire to get out and do something rather than be just stuck around home. And and it's beautiful wilderness area. Well, that's what people think. It's, just, it's home to me. It's not wilderness. <laughs> Richard, what did you learn about yourself as a leader through COVID? Uh, that I'm a worrywart, that I worry a lot more than I thought I did. In worrying, you, you worry about it, then you work out what the solution is, and then you go with the solution. But I didn't realise how much time you, when the pressure's on, that you actually do worry. Mm. So I say to my wife now, I've got to make sure that as the years go on, I don't spend as time much time worrying as what I have done previously. Did you have a, a good path through school? Did you go to uni? Or? Oh, God, no. No, so none of that. You, how did you develop your business acumen? I repeated grade 10 at high school. I got life membership at Claremont High School down the Hobart because I just wasn't academic in any way. I worked out after I started French when I was in grade 7. Between the first and second terms, if I continued to improve at the rate I was, I still wouldn't pass in grade 10, so I gave it away. Mm. So, you know, I repeated grade 10, there's not too many ever have to do that. And academic, no, not at all. That's probably the, the best career path I could pick for how my academics were going to qualify me was to go and work in the shearing sheds and become a wool classer. Yeah. And, and do you reckon that sort of beginning did help you develop business acumen and skills or not oh, at all? Absolutely. 
No, it, it did. It did. Tough and knowing that I was sure from the age of probably about 15 that I was actually wasn't as stupid as most people thought I was. I'm not stupid, but wasn't intelligent or academic. I've, I've decided that academia is one thing and uh, good thinking ability is another thing and it doesn't have to relate to academia. As, as I tell my kids now that don't forget experience and intelligence are miles apart, that you might come back from uni and think you know a lot here, but I didn't go to uni, but my experience is probably worth a lot more than your intelligence. And if you're smart, you'll get the experience and then you'll have both. But there's miles apart between experience and intelligence. Mm. Did you encourage your kids to go to uni, though? Uh, we didn't push them, but we encouraged them, yes, and they all did. And now all of them or a couple are involved in the business with you? Well, basically all of them are. The youngest one lives in Hobart because her partner's down there, but she'll come up uh, probably every couple of weeks. And during COVID, she came and worked on the cattle operation mm. and loved it and just was so natural at it. But a partner's still down there, but she still does PR work for us. And the eldest does all their marketing PR and has got a company that does all the overseas marketing for uh, Tourism Australia for golf. So she's very close to golf. Penny, the second eldest, the managing director of the golf company. Stephen, the third only boy, runs the farming operation. So, yeah, we're a pretty close family. Mm, and they all get fantastic. on and they all have fun together. And that's what I try and teach them. Unless you're having fun, then life can be pretty miserable. Yeah. So two girls and a boy? Three girls and a boy. Three girls and a boy. Sorry, I lost count in there. I do some days too. (laughs) Do you think of yourself as an entrepreneur? Oh, God, no. Not smart enough for that. What do you think of yourself as? An opportunist. That's selling yourself short, I reckon. No, I don't think so. Like, I really, if you knew me well, you'd say just, I like taking opportunity. Well, I suppose you're saying it that it's not a dirty word. Opportunist can be used as a kind of a, you know, a derogatory word, but the way you would use it is it's not a dirty word at all. No, we've got big sand dunes further out the coast and we've been trying to get into the Sydney market with fine sand that they use for concreting and we've got a deposit there with about 25 million tonnes of it, but we can't quite get into the Sydney market. So to me, I failed there. We haven't quite got into it, but we sell quite a bit around Tasmania. And I don't. I just class that as another business opportunity. There's a horrible big sand dune blowing in off the coast that everyone say was a negative. We've tried to turn that into a positive and mine it for concreting sand. Oh my goodness, you're going to sell the beautiful sand down there off the beach and turn it into concrete? No, if you look at Google Maps, the bit we're selling is... Not very pretty. <laughs> it's all blowing inland. So, but we're very conscious that we wouldn't do it if we thought it would distract from yeah. what we're doing. We're very conscious of that sort of thing because it's got to be here. I say to kids now, look. You mean you're very conscious of the environment? Of, of the environment mm. and sustainability. Mm. There's another generation following on. I don't want to rip everything out just for the pleasure of it here because I say to the kids, look, I don't look at money as wealth and money's really just a scoreboard as to whether it worked or not. I've never been a big spender, so you don't, you're not looking at money and saying, how much have I got? You're saying, how successful is that project that I really wanted to make successful? So it is, there is a different thinking there. Mm. Do you have a business motto or business values that have guided you? Oh, lots of them. Probably the best one for young people is where most people have got a wishbone, you've got to have a backbone. Have a backbone. Yep, not a wishbone. That's a great saying. Just briefly, what does that mean to you? Well, just so many people just dream of doing something and being successful and all that sort of thing, but at the end of the day, you've got to really knuckle down and do the work. 
So that's just the hard way. There's very seldom an easy way. You see people in business that seem to make mega millions and it looks so easy. But most of them may go through a tough time getting there. But I'd just say that most people will sit around dreaming and imagining how they could do this, that and the other, but somewhere along the line, the, the backbone's what you have to have to get into the project. Mm. And the other one that I hear a lot casually say now is money isn't the most important thing in the world, but it is up there with oxygen. Mm. So without oxygen, you're not going far without money you're not going to go far either if you're aiming to be in business. Mm. But that's very much lighthearted, very yeah. much a lighthearted one, that though. Mistakes at Barn Burgle. Have you tried things that didn't work and you pulled back from them? Oh, God, yeah. I say that I only get about 50% of the things I do right. i just got to try and make the big ones right and the small ones wrong. So we've, all, we've tried to grow different types of vegetables and we've tried different breeds of cattle and... We're really ready to have a go at anything, but we tiptoe in carefully so that you know if it's not working, you can back off in a hurry and not leave yourself in a dangerous position. It's a bit like our sand mining project. We spent millions trying to get into the Sydney market, but we knew once we got to a certain point, and we look, we're probably $10 a tonne outside of the market where they get it from Stockton Bite. We've got to back off and just wait for the market to change or find an easier way to handle it. Yeah, you can't match that price from we Newcastle. Can, we can't match, no. So we've got to be realists and say, right, that's failed at present, but we're still sitting there knocking on the door when the time comes. And we tried to put a joint venture together with a couple of the big concrete companies. And they said, look, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So you just know you've just got to bite your time that you've got a project that potentially will work, but it's not working at present. Don't throw everything out. Just be patient and wait until it's right. Richard, what do you think is key to being a successful entrepreneur or opportunist or, or starting up a sustainable business? I don't really know. Um, you've got to have a sort of thick skin. You've got to be prepared to take failure. And um, you've just I think you've got to have the right motives to do it. Like you really you want to be successful, you don't want to be just glamorous, I think. So you want to, the success you're doing for your own personal benefit, not for show. If you're doing it for show, when you'll, you'll see four people fall by the wayside that have gone out and been quite successful, often fall over because it's all for show, mm. not for dough. Just yeah. like all those golfers say, you drive for show, you get the big driver out in the first tee and hit the ball as far as you can. But when you're putting and you're only six inches from the hole, that little six-inch shot, Counts as much. It's one stroke just like the big shot. So you get the little ones right and the big ones where you might get away with it without doing it perfectly every time. So you try for show, pat for dough. The small king ones count just as much. You said you're not a great golfer now. Where would you rather spend your time, on the golf course or on the farm? Oh, on the farm, definitely. If I'm having a bad day, I'll just go for a drive up through the farm and just driving through a big mob of cattle, grazing nice lush green grass. is just a great satisfying feeling for what I wanted out of life. Just a couple of questions that I'm asking most of my guests. What are you obsessed about at the moment? Be it a, a book, a, a cause, a thing, a project? And nothing right at present. I get obsessed about the pro, each project I go into. I was obsessed about the short course. It became a real obsession in designing it. I wanted this one course to be stress-free, fun to do. Let's have a good time while we're doing it. There's no rush. And then COVID hit and all of a sudden it became a very serious project and you had to stay completely focused. don't know. I spend a lot of time analysing myself. I'm not bright enough to find the correct answers, I don't think. What's the toughest thing you faced in your journey, your career journey? Probably buying Barnburg on the fear of going broke. 
and being close to it and knowing you've really got to struggle and you're reliant on your ability to convince financiers that even though you're not looking too good that you're a long-term prospect. So I reckon that would probably be the toughest. What have you loved the most about your journey? Um, I think my kids being involved and really enjoying it. Mm, so well, that's pretty special. Family and, yeah, it's special and they're happy to be in it and you see the joy they get around the dinner table and a few wines, you see the happiness there and I think that's one of the great satisfaction as a, as a successful, healthy, happy family. What one thing would you say to young people wanting to pursue an idea or be entrepreneurial? Well, I'll try and find an easier way than what your father did. If he's your kids and anyone else, try and find an easier way. I haven't found it yet, but there must be. But maybe there's not an easy way. It's just hard <laughs> work, hard not, slog. Yeah. It could be, yeah. Richard Sattler, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. A pleasure. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.